players gather to cast powerful spells, some of the oldest and most powerful in the history of Magic the Gathering. Lotus Petal, Mox Diamond, Grim Monolith, and many others. Battling head-to-head -head in brutal combat, they all have one thing in common, to uphold their legacy and the search for eternal glory. The Eternal Glory Podcast is brought to you by the minds behind Bosch and Roll on YouTube, Thurabian University, and TheEpicStorm.com. Hello, and welcome to episode 112 of the Eternal Glory Podcast, a tale of two eternal weekends. We've already recorded 30 minutes of introduction and banter for the week, available in our supporter-exclusive pre-show. Check out patreon.com slash eternalglory to gain access, or join as a YouTube member for the same content on YouTube instead. I'm Phil Gallagher, a.k.a. Thraben U. I am Brian Koval, a.k.a. Bosch and Roll. And I am Brian Cook of the Epic Storm. Shout out to our new paid members who enjoyed the 30-minute pre-show this month for the first time. We've got Joe A., Sean S., and Mike T., all from Patreon. Shout out to you all if you want to get access to that. We actually ended up doing kind of longer pre-show because we started talking about main episode topics by accident. And we have a 10 or 15 minute thing, like a deep dive on sideboarding for Eternal Weekend in our pre-show. Normally that's just talking shit hanging out, but there's real strategic content this month if you want it. So check that out, patreon.com slash eternal glory. And if you're a listener and you're interested in getting your product out there, we are accepting sponsors for 2024. Contact us at com and uh, let's collaborate. All right. Setting the stage for today's episode. I know we say eternal weekend like it's one thing, but it's really a global event, multiple events. And two-thirds of our eternal weekends have already happened. We have EW Europe and EW Asia that we're going to cover today, kind of covering some of the decks, some cool stories, what the metagame is like, and things of that general nature. And let's start with good old EW Europe. So I attended this event in Prague. I played four-color beanstalk control with Triumph of St. Catherine. I thought my list was sweet, ended up with a mediocre result. Turns out that was a tough field, tough day for that deck, which we'll get into later. It turned out to be the most winning deck out of Asia, but in Europe, there is not a four-color beanstalk control deck to be found. I'm scrolling down the, the top 16 now, or top lists. There's one at 8-2. It's deep. It's not even top 16. It's somewhere in the top 32. There is a bunch of rug. There's a bunch of combo and red decks. Yeah, the, that four-color beanstalk deck was not well-positioned in the Prague room. So I'm actually looking at the Eternal Weekend Europe, aka Prague, results, and one of the things I love about MTG Goldfish is they, on top of just having the deck list or whatever, they also break down into most played cards, new cards being played, stuff like that. So the most played cards out of the event... Number one, Force of Will. Number two, Brainstorm. Number three, Ponder. Sound familiar? Number four, Orcish Bowmasters. Five, Swords to Polisher. Six is Surgical Extraction, a cyborg card. Seven is Lotus Petal. Eight is Force of Negation. What? Number nine is Days. Ten is Thoughtseize. What does that say about our current metagame? It sounds really polarizing, at least to me. Yeah, Lotus Petal being a 
top five card in a 750 player tournament is pretty spicy. And I mean, it's a golden age for Lotus Petal. That used to mean Storm. Now it means Initiative. Now it means 8-cast. There's all sorts of things that Lotus Petal is in now that it wasn't in 10 years ago. That is a surprising thing that's kind of sliding under the radar. If you look at these top finishes, it makes a lot of sense. We've talked about Ancient Tomb on the cast a handful of times and about how accelerating things out and cheating on mana in some capacity is just super central to Legacy. I think right now Boros Initiative as a whole is really well positioned no matter what data metric you're looking at which data set like the deck is putting up good results and it's not like it's the only good Lotus Petal deck. I'm not surprised to see this. Yeah, it makes sense once you see it, but if you had challenged me to write down my 10 most played cards at Eternal Weekend Prague, I would not have written down Lotus Petal, no matter how long you gave me to think about it. Even Wilder, top creatures played, Simeon Spirit Guide is the sixth most played creature in this event. Yeah, that's wild to me. Uh, Fairy Macabre is above Dragon's Reach Channeler. People came ready for Reanimator. When you look at the spells, Surgical Extraction was six. So, between Surgical Extraction and fairy macabre those are high numbers respecting the graveyard more fairy macabres than dragon rage channelers actually is just shaking me to my core because that's not like more surgical extractions than dragon's rage channelers because surgical can go in any old deck and fairy macabre could go in any old deck too but it doesn't it only goes in non-blue decks and usually decks that are prisoning out surgical extraction in some way like if you have your tritospheres or your chalice on ones or your thalia guardian of the ravens that's where you want fairy macabre so you don't step on your own surgical and And the fact that those decks are so represented that Fairy Macabre outranks Dragon's Rage Channeler is very scary. Brian, pour one out for your homie Uro Titan of Nature's Wrath in 10th place behind Brazen Borrower, behind Troll of Kazadoom, barely on the list. And people wanted that dude banned. Well, anyone who ever wanted Uro banned is just a clown. That was never even close to a thing that needed to be considered. Uh, But at least Uro's on the list. Uro was not in my deck for the tournament. I played four color control that included blue and green, and I was not playing Uro. I was playing Triumph of St. Catherine, because up the Beanstalk plus Triumph of St. Catherine is kind of a build-your-own-Uro while avoiding the graveyard. I do wonder if Uro still belongs on this top 10 list. There is a significant divergence between the online and paper metagames. I saw Triumph of St. Catherine all around the room. I stayed in a 13-person Airbnb, and everybody in the room played both tournaments, and when I mentioned Triumph of St. Catherine, the mood in the room was kind of like, yeah, I brought those, or I thought about those. I have them in my maybe pile. Nobody was like, oh, wow, really? That card? On the radar for real paper players. Looking at the metagame summary of this event... Grixis Tempo was the most played deck. When you look at MTG Goldfish, usually, Grixis Tempo is somewhere in the, like, I don't know, like 10 to 12% of the metagame, typically, somewhere in that ballpark. When you look at the paper results, it is... 5.7%. That's really low. And that is one of those things where when people talk about how Magic Online versus Paper are like drastically different, I always kind of shake those people off because I think Magic Online informs Paper quite a bit, but I do think Paper has more people wanting to play their deck. Like if someone is going to travel all the way to Prague 
they're going to enjoy themselves. They're going to play their passion project or whatever they're really there for. They might also display the most spiky deck in the tournament. Like those are the people that re- usually travel for these sort of things. And to see Grixis Stelver with a 5.7% is a little surprising to me as the most played deck. Behind that is Lands and Boros Initiative, both at around 4.5%, Painter at 4.5%, and everything underneath that is less than 4% of the metagame. So that means Legacy is super diverse right now, which is really exciting. I'm surprised that we didn't see a larger percentage of either Death Shadow or Demir Scam. I thought those were going to be like front runners for things that people like very obviously were going to be playing. And and like at roughly 4%, I, I guess that's still a decent amount, but I expected more of that and Delver. So it's a little tricky because looking at this metagame breakdown, we have Grixis Tempo in first, Death Shadow in fifth, Demir Scam right behind Death Shadow in seventh. The teamer deck is much further down that was like two percent teamer delver if we bucket those into wasteland days tempo decks with force of will and and threats that is like 15 percent of the metagame oh grixis scam has its own two percent bucket as well like 15 17 percent of the metagame is these wasteland days creature decks how we break that down versus how we perceive it. And obviously those are different decks, but from a strategic standpoint of what's your plan versus Delver, people aren't asking the, about the card Delver of Secrets. They're asking about decks that will present something quick and disrupt you. That is actually a massive meta share for that wedge of the format. So you mentioned the Teamer Delver deck being roughly 2% of the metagame. When we look at the results of the event, it was actually won by Juju, uh, the Bean, one of the Zoomers from Magic Online, playing the Teamer deck, not playing Grixis. Yeah, uh, I've been telling people who want to listen that I think that that was the better, air quotes, Delver deck. Is Delver even in Juju's list? Uh, Okay, he is actually playing Delver. Okay, good, good, good. A lot of these lists were going taller. Juju's list, it's called Teamer, but this is actually just Is It Delver? And it has one Tropical Island to cast the front side of Questing Druid with. And this is different than a Teamer deck that's got like Uro in it. Or we've seen like Sylvan Library or just random other stuff, Hooting Mandrills. Some people try to play Beanstalk in this deck. This is Is It Delver that can cast the flavor text on Questing Druid with one land in its deck, which is a a very different thing. And I think some of the other card choices really play into this pattern, right? Before Eternal Weekend happened, I I was playing a league. I played against a very similar list, and I got hit with Stern Dismissal in game one. And I was like, whoa, that's a wild choice. And then I also saw Portent, and I'm like, what is going on here? Watching the stream, I was really thrown back by Portent. I was like, so he decided Preordain wasn't good enough. I don't know the rationale behind it, but I thought it was really interesting that Portent was included over Preordain. Something that the chat wanted to see was Juju was facing Doomsday, and everyone was like, please, Portent, Doomsday, do it. Mess up their Doomsday pile. Uh, It didn't end up happening, but it was an option that was available. I roomed with Juju. He was in that Airbnb. We didn't really talk about our our decks in detail. And after the event, I saw two portents in the list. And I was like, did they report that wrong? It it is a deep cut and really interesting. This is the sign of someone who has done the work and tried the things. Like, obviously, you just called out Preordain as a, a very obvious choice to be in that slot. Juju has played enough games to realize that either the extra cards worth of selection or the ability to target your opponent are worth more than getting the card right now. It's very easy to dismiss 
things like this as like mistakes as wrong things like when i was playing against in a league versus a random person and i saw these cards i i was like what what is what is this person doing why why are they doing this why aren't we playing more optimal cards and then you see results like these and you go like okay someone has something figured out maybe when you are a tempo deck with a murktide region in play the ability to portent your opponent select their top cards make it so that they don't draw their sword to plowshares that is they're out to your kill like maybe that flexibility is worth it maybe messing with the timing of the card draw allows you to do something weird with an orcish bowmaster line or or something like that speaking of players that have done something weird that sort of solved it uh, i'm going to butcher their last name but i promise i'm trying to do my best here mark tobias 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 they top aided Eternal Weekend Europe and then almost top aided Eternal Weekend Asia as well, playing a Doomsday list that is a straight four color. It is not blue black with like a hint, it is four color. It's playing Teferi Time Raveler in white, Prismatic Ending, Swords to Plowshare, Serenity. Like that is a heavy white splash. And then in green, we see Veil of Summer, Carpet of Flowers, and then an additional sideboard Veil of Summer on top of the One Ring. Mark figured out, hey, I want Teferi to stop interaction. I need Veil against all of the Orcish Bowmaster slash Scam decks. And then the One Ring is good against the control matchups, but it also protects you from Orcish Bowmasters. Like this list to me, doesn't look like someone threw a bunch of cards together. This list looks like somebody went deep into the tank and started thinking about cards that solved their problems and came out with a list that did it. Yep, agreed. This is the the end product after the Charlie Kelly meme with uh, just like the the wall of stuff and the the crazy hair and the shirt slightly untucked and disheveled and you look crazy and you got this map of strings all tied together. This is what happens after that phase. It's not a fluke. Like Mark is a very strong player. I, I believe he was on Hariruya, Team Hariruya, if not Hariruya Hopes. Like he he has a an actual pro career behind him and putting up this with this insane deck, then flying to Japan and then almost doing it again. Uh, he's actually in one of the group techs I'm in, and he said that he might have been able to draw it in Japan in the last round, and he was just like too tired to do the math or something and decided to play. Ended up 8-2 after being 8-0. A repeat performance with this deck across two massive events is, this is a real thing. I would also like to mention that those are two eternal weekends, multi-day tournaments that are long. That is an act of, of, of stamina. Especially with a deck as difficult as Doomsday. Yeah, and, and like, that's kind of the thing though. Like, we've talked about this a lot where Doomsday is difficult to learn. But is it difficult to pilot once you've done the work? Watching you, Bryant, play the Epic Storm on your channel versus me trying to play it, even after you like share your sideboard guide and I watch you play it, I'm still like, oh my god, everything is bending my mind. And you're just like, you can look at an unwinnable position, you're like, okay, I just need to brainstorm into exactly this card in this order, floating mana off LED and spike what I just hope has to be there. Okay, there it is. And it's like, just another day at the office. Uh, like you just see these lines because you have thousands of reps with them. Me looking at this at this deck, this Doomsday deck, looking at any Doomsday deck, but then adding what if we have to Fairy Time Raveler and the One Ring both as three ups in our deck? Like, what does this do? How do I map all these lines? I imagine Mark could just like, okay, this is control. I'd like to resolve a Teferi and then win, or I need to get the One Ring up to three counters because then I can resolve Doomsday, tap the One Ring, and immediately Oracle, or you know whatever it is. I imagine this deck was hard to build and hard to learn, 
but I do wonder if it's actually hard for Mark to play it at this point. I have two things here. One, I ran into this deck list a ton in my testing because I've been grinding leagues and people are out there playing it. I've also seen a lot of people posting 5-0s with this list. It doesn't seem like a fluke. The other thing I wanted to mention is I've been playing tons of Vintage, where people have realized casting Lurian Revealed isn't as difficult as they thought when you have some extra acceleration. Doomsday has always had the problem of like, your first Dark Ritual is great and everyone after that stinks. Mark has solved that. You have the One Ring. Yeah, you're happy. You're thrilled to turn to Dark Ritual, the One Ring. Like, that is another Doomsday power level card that you now have access to. But you could also play into Lorien Revealed. Like, your Dark Rituals, you always have something to throw into them now. You're not just sitting around waiting on Doomsday. And I think that's actually a really huge improvement to the deck list. I'd also like to just praise this deck for solving one of Doomsday's biggest innate problems, and that is the life total issue, right? Like, Doomsday so frequently has to, like, pass the turn with a low life total and put itself in real danger. The One Ring protection from everything goes a long way towards keeping you alive. And in the sideboard, there's also Shouldered the Apocalypse. And Shouldered plus a One Ring activation or two buys you so much more time to actually set up your win. I, I really like the intricacies of this deck. Yep, and I've played Teferi in Doomsday before. I haven't gone four color, but I have gone three color. Teferi also helps solve the life total problem by just end-stepping the Doomsday, and then you untap and win. <laughs> I love it. Absolutely fuck that, Brian. No, don't tell people that. Oh my god. It's a thing I've done. Like, if the Teferi sticks and you just untap with it once, you plus, and then you just can never lose. I've never seen this because Teferi's only mode versus whatever bullshit I'm playing is just like minus bounce that creature, minus bounce that lock piece. That's disgusting. Yeah, sometimes people just uh, have a handful of Swords to Plowshares or Fluster Storms or whatever, and Teferi lands on an empty board and actually gets to go up. It's weird, but it happens. Can we talk about something that has been blowing my mind ever since I saw it? So when you look at modern... Rakdos Scam is one of the best decks in the format, if not the best deck. Brian talked about playing it uh, at SCG Pit. Rakdos Scam top-aided Legacy. How crazy is that? I want to point out that this is not just the modern deck ported into Legacy. This is actually just like mono-black reanimator scam with a bunch of red cards in the sideboard. So it's a little different. Like People aren't out here. Uh, flickering fury on turn one and just getting a town the way they are in modern this is actually a hogak deck there's one hogak in it uh, which is really funny this deck is pretty cool and i have i just recorded a league today and i played against two different mono black appearing creaturey scammy decks uh, i didn't see a reanimator top end like this one this one has one atraxa one hogak one archon of cruelty and then other than that it's like Voidwalker, bowmaster grief troll and this is the type of thing that would appeal to the imagination. And I think it was labeled scam due to having Troll, Grief, Bowmaster, Dothy. But I would like to point out that this actually top-aided the showcase on Magic Online this past weekend as well. This deck is putting up a bunch of numbers. I think that some people are just copying this deck without putting a lot of thought into it. I've, I've seen multiple people post that they don't actually like the Hogak within, its, within the list it's very easy to get that like stuck in a situation where it's not actually castable. Um, I, I think I played a, a match against this where like I lost on like turn 16 
where I just did nothing for like eight turns and they had a Hogak in graveyard and one black creature. And we just like stared at each other as neither one of us could do anything. It's worth noting that Orcish Bowmasters does give you two black creatures so you can cast it, but it's really the only card in the deck that would do so. Yeah, and there's like some awkward pairings you can get where like you have two creatures, but one of them is an Urza Saga token. Uh, the Urza Saga doesn't like allow you to cast uh, turn two Dalthy Voidwalker. I have not been a fan of what I have seen from this deck from the other side of the table. But let me say that with the caveat that this is probably people picking it up and trying it for the first time. So, like, please take that with a grain of salt because it is putting up results. Yeah, so there are engines on engines here. And those of you following on the auditory medium and not actually looking at the list, I'm just going to keep naming cards. Like, we talked about Mono Black Reanimator Scam, and then Phil just casually said Urza Saga token. Yeah, it's a Saga deck too. And by the way, it plays two copies of Currency Converter, which poops out of the Urza Saga, and then enables your reanimation. And the rogues that are made by Currency Converter are black for Hogak. So there is like a multi-step situation here. There's two Lilian of the Veil in this deck too. So there are all sorts of boxes checked. Maybe two weeks ago, I 5 would with a Currency Converter Eagles of the North deck list. Currency Converter is very, very good with Troll of Kaza Doom because you can cycle that card, put it under Currency Converter, Make your 2-2, and if you draw your reanimate a little bit later on, you can then reanimate that troll afterwards. Currency converter plus cycling creatures is very, very, very strong. I've been out here in these streets with Timeless Dragon, Shark Typhoon. Like, nobody needs to sell me or anyone who watches my videos on currency converter, but it did fall off for a little while, and it's very cool that people have discovered it again with Troll of Kazadoom, which is exactly the spot. Like, it's... I did, I did this a lot with Timeless Dragon, and it does feel completely outrageous when you can just tutor a planes and then also make a 2-2 and then untap and make a 4-4. And you can also use it to sidestep Graveyard Hate because Currency Converter exiles the card. When it goes to the graveyard, there's a trigger and you can exile the discarded card. And then you could just bank that Troll of Kazadoom under the Currency Converter. You don't have to make a Rogue right away if you suspect Graveyard Hate, and then you can do some stuff with your graveyard, make them pop their Soul Guide Lantern or whatever, and then make a rogue, reanimate the troll later down the road. There's a lot of cool One tricks One of the things here. I wasn't a fan of in seeing this deck in action was the sideboard Magus of the Moon, because you are a three Urza Saga deck that has multiple different cards with black black in the, the mana cost, right? Like you're a Liliana of the Veil deck, you are a Dalthy Voidwalker deck, I mean, there's technically Hogak as well. And you also only have five swamps. And if you're using one of your fetch lands to go and get the Badlands for Magus of the Moon, you cut yourself off of black black a good portion of the time, uh, making some of your stuff not necessarily castable. Well, there's also sideboard Fable, the Mirror Breaker, to, to fix all that. You just have to board in all the cards as a package. Yeah, uh, in insert the meme of the giant water tank and a sticker that says Fable of the Mirror Breaker. Just fix that mana base. Uh, I want to jump to another deck here, and this is one we have discussed on the pod before, and this got second place in the tournament. This is Teamer Cascade. Rhino deck taken straight out of Modern 
and add some spirit guides and Minskin Boo, and boom, you got a legacy deck. This one does have Fury in it, unlike the scam deck. Right, right. Yeah, this one actually does have some more modern cards. Really, the only thing in this deck that's not modern legal is Force of Will, Minskin Boo, and the Spirit Guides. We talked about this. It was a top five deck on MTG Goldfish about a month ago, and then it kind of fell under the radar. And it's back on the radar now. I have played against this deck online. I played against this deck in Eternal Weekend. Uh, in Prague when I was there. Not this player, but it was someone else. And you got to respect this. This is a lot of heat very quickly. And they have eight forces in their main deck, plus some number of mystical disputes. And then they can board in more interaction. This deck, you should have a plan for this, or at least be aware of how to play against it. While it plays like a Delver deck, you have to sideboard like a combo deck. And it's kind of a weird thing to balance. I saw some discussion on this deck list because uh, this player did something sort of unique to the archetype. They cut some lands for Wasteland. And a lot of these lists don't play Wasteland because you're a deck that's required to have blue, red, green. And that's kind of tough if you're also a Wasteland strategy. That said, you do play a bunch of Spirit Guides. It's not impossible. But a lot of people choose not to play Wasteland for that reason. This player decided, hey, I'm going to do my thing and then I'm going to Wasteland you into the dirt backed by eight forces. Four copies of Lorien Revealed really let you get away with uh, some additional murder when it comes to the mana base greed. Yep, especially since your deck, at least without the help of two spirit guides, is not going to do anything on turn one anyway. It's a nice mana sink, and it lets you cheat on lands, and you get these tech lands in here like Wasteland. The modern build of the deck actually plays Mutavault in that spot because it plays Flame of Anor, and Mutavault is a wizard, so you get both modes. This deck, despite its mana requirements of uh, needing your colored pips for your cascade spells, it does have room for colorless tech lands, as we see in both this list and we can learn from modern. That's true. One thing that you should be aware of if you are playing a creature deck is that they can board out crashing footfalls for games two and three to play Inevitable Betrayal, uh, which they can cascade into. It's search target opponent's library for a creature card and put that card onto the battlefield under your control. So if you have an Emrakul, an Atraxa, some other really scary creature in your deck, be aware that that can be stolen. I mentioned previously that I was hanging out in the Twitch chat, and in there I noticed that some people were knocking the fact that Grixis Delver had a poor performance. There was a copy that made top 8, however, uh, from what I understand is the person's last round opponent conceded to them, and that's why they made the top 8. Uh, the person who conceded apparently wanted to play Vintage the next day, and the way that it was set up was, was tough to do so if you had made top 8. I'm not exactly familiar, maybe Brian can speak to that. Yeah, the structure of the event in Prague was not ideal. U.S. Eternal Weekend is run by Card Titan. They've been running it for a number of years now, and they have learned that it needs to be a three-day event at minimum. And this year, it's actually a four-day event. It starts on Thursday. European EW was Saturday, Sunday. Legacy Vintage, boom, boom, we're done. The options of play out the top eight until 3 a.m. or whatever was nixed. And the top eight of Legacy was played Sunday morning, but that Legacy top eight started at nine and Vintage started at 10. It was just a sorry, I guess, if you were busy winning the Legacy tournament. You just don't get to play Vintage or you have to lose some number of rounds at the start. That's not great. I hope they figure that out uh, for next year. I mean, Juju handled it like a boss. I would have been completely berserk if I was top forward Legacy and was told, no, you don't get to play Vintage. Uh, I would have been beside myself uh, flying to uh, a far off nation and being told I can't play in the event because the TO set it up poorly. Fuck that. There is a funny story. That thing you were just saying, 
the person who scooped in their friend in the final round, they actually had lethal on board and they were just like, no, I'd rather play vintage. Go ahead. They also top eight of vintage. <laughs> yes, yes. They absolute sicko. They did the uh, functionally double top eight in Eternal Weekend, except that because the way the TO ran it, they don't get that actually get that feather in their cap. But yeah, this sicko was just like, you're better at Lego Legacy than me. Your deck's better for this top eight than mine. And I'm, I like vintage better anyway. And then they just ran it back the next day. I wish I knew who it was. Uh, it, I didn't recognize the name. It, it's a, a, my European roommates knew the person though. So the point that I wanted to make initially was people were knocking Grixis Delver for the poor performance. But when you look at the top eight, 50% of the decks are Delver tempo. And that's not counting the Cascade deck that we just spoke about, which is really a tempo strategy. One of the decks that I classified as Delver is Delverless. It's playing Dragon's Rage Channeler, Questing Druid, Brazen Borrower, Murktide Regent, and then, guys, hop in your time machines, Ethereal Forgers. So it is playing that card. I remember when Ethereal Forger was like a 35-ticket card on Magic Online, and then they spoiled Murktide Regent, and no one has remembered the card ever since. Well, it top-aided Eternal Weekend Prague. Yeah, that card's got some heat on it in Vintage, as in the Bant Beanstalk deck, because, you know, Ancestral Recall and Time Walk are cards worth having a second go at with your your big whale but yeah seeing that one in legacy is pretty surprising we're over our halfway point to our target this pod and still talking about this event and we have three other events to talk about so i'm going to try to rush this along i think the thing that shocked me the most is the metagame penetration of painter this was four and a half percent of the metagame tied with Boros Initiative. I know Painter's good. I don't think that deck is bad, and I know it has its diehards, but I never had Painter on my radar as the type of deck that 32 people would register for an event. I thought it had its diehards and nobody else. Are these just the 32 diehards, or is this on the radar of people who are like, yeah, I actually think this is well-positioned and I'm going to choose it on purpose? Brian, I hate to burst your bubble, but if you look at the Asia results, Painter, 4% again, 26 people, one of the most exploited. Ancient Doom Gamers, you don't have to rise up like you are already there. Yeah, and not only that, uh, looking at mtgdex.net, they tweeted a grid of archetype by archetype matchup analysis painter had was tied for the best win rate in the tournament with its buddy boros initiative they were both four and a half percent of the metagame they both won 56 percent of their matches overall and demir scam 54 was the only other one in that ballpark and then there was a bunch of stuff around 50 reanimator in depths just ate shit at 45 percent boros and painter both fourth and fifth or third and fourth? Yeah, third and fourth in the metagame, and had the two best win rates, and non-blue decks featuring Ancient Tomb. Embrace it, folks. It's here. I think Ancient Tomb has gone, gone under the radar because of how much attention, like, Orcish Bowmasters and Up the Beanstalk got as, like, things that are drastically changing the blue decks, when these Ancient Tomb decks have just kind of, like, slowly been refining, and they're just getting better and better and better, while people are still... I don't feel like blue decks are solved right now. I, I don't know which one of these assorted blue bean decks is the best. The Teamer Delver, Rug Delver deck is, is having a really good showing. I don't know that I can say with certainty that that is just the best Delver or more generally the best tempo deck in the format. Yep. Those of us who might still be living in a world where we're thinking about like, how do I beat the, the control mirror? 
you better figure out how you can beat Ancient Tomb. That's the bigger problem right now. All right, so I think that's all that we have to say about EW Europe as far as the legacy decks go. And given how long we talked about them, why don't we just do a quick rundown of some highlights? Brian, what do you want to say about Vintage here in Europe? Vintage metagame looks really healthy. Top eight, uh, Demir Storm, Grixis Control, Demir Combo, Demir Control. Uh, the Demir Combo is actually the Esper Tinker deck that won. It, that's how it's classified for reasons. Two Oath decks. Oh, there's also an Esper Combo deck. Maybe I don't know what I'm talking about. There's es Demir Control with white, and then there's Esper Combo, and one Hollowvine deck. Oh, Oath of Druids had a lot of heat on it going into the event. It was understood to be one of the best decks. And then the other best deck was the Demir Control Luris deck, which only got through with one copy into the top eight in the hands of Eternal Weekend Slayer Hans Jacob Gotik who has two paintings already and then lost in the finals of this event, almost collecting a third painting. What a sicko, by the way. And his deck is very good. They have a really teched out version of what is one of the most winning lists. If you don't mind not being super broken, if you like fair magic, the Lur Demir Luris deck is insane. I played Oath. I played the same 75 as Justin Gennari, who went undefeated through the Swiss. And my experience was I beat all the creature decks I was supposed to beat. I lost all the faster combo decks I was supposed to lose to. I paired into zero bazaar and zero shops, both of which are good matchups for Oath. And there is, uh, it looks like Andrea Mangucci went X2 with an actual shops, like workshop strategy, traditional shops. Uh, he is not in the top eight, obviously. One hollow vine got through. Uh, it's a really bad event for both shops and bazaars and looks like a, a really good time to own your blue pieces of power. All right, then let's talk about EW Asia now. A uh, quick run through the top eight. We have Oops All Spells, Doomsday, a five-color control deck list, an initiative deck, two more five-color control decks, a Rug Delver, and another initiative Stompy. When we look at the overall metagame, we see Teamer Delver at 6.5%, so more than Grixis Delver at the European event. So people saw the results of that first one, made adjustments for this upcoming event. The thing that shocks me here, Sneak and Show is the second most played deck at 6%. That is more than Grixis Delver and the Prague event, which is just wild to me. And then underneath that is Grixis Tempo. So I like seeing that the metagame adjusted within that period of like two weeks between the events. What do you guys think about that? That is really interesting. It is not a surprise to me that the Delver players were able to pivot that quickly. And there was a week between these two events. I, I don't know how many people just own Sneak and Show in their back pocket just in case a metagame looks right for it. This seems like maybe this was going to be a Sneak and Show heavy metagame anyway. This is a big thing that I talk about with a lot of my coaching clients and stuff who come in and they're like, Team or Delver won that event last week. What should I be worried about? Do I need to level and now I need to beat lands because people are going to pivot onto lands to beat Delver. And I'm like, who owns lands? Who can play lands at a high enough level that they could literally pivot on two weeks notice to be like, I was going to play Teamer Delver, but now I'm on lands. It's like Jarvis U beginning and end of list. That's the only person who has that range and owns those cards that I'm really worried about making a pivot that drastic. Snake and Show, Show and Tells, Emrakul's, Grizzlebrand, Sneak Attacks, Ancient Tombs. Like, do we think 40 people really just had nut collections and came to the same conclusion? Or do we just think that this event was likely to have a lot of Sneak and Show players in it anyway? I have seen 
tweets indicating that the Japanese players enjoy Sneak and Show as an archetype, and this was not unsurprising. I am not in tune with the Japanese metagame overall, but when you see something like that, you have to be analytical about it. You can't just be like, wow, Sneak and Show's on the uptick. I'm going to play Death and Taxes to counter it in American Eternal Weekend. Like, that's crazy. This this is just people who own the deck anyway, and they were always going to play it. I do think the flip with Teamer on the top and Grixis, the second most played tempo deck, is actually a direct result of Europe, though. That tracks a lot better for me. What's weird, though, is Reanimator is the number four deck in this metagame, despite being the worst performing of the highly played decks in Europe by a lot. Uh, I guess Scam deck, air quotes Scam, whatever we're calling that, did make the top eight. Traditional Reanimator, I didn't see that anywhere in the room. Uh, it had a 45% win rate, pretty bad overall. Boros Initiative and Painter, here they are. The buddies, again, uh, right after Animator in spots number five and six. Again, they did well. Again, they came out in high numbers. That's impressive. The thing that really grinds my gear is Domain Beanstalk, the five-color deck. We've got one, two, three of these in the top eight. It boasted a 60% win rate across the tournament overall. After me and every other Beanstalk soup player just ate shit, in Prague one week earlier. What happened in Japan where this was a great choice, where the week before nobody made any traction with it? That's really interesting for me to try to delve into. Dead ass though, sneak and show in these high numbers. Sneak and show used to be something like, uh, as a control deck, I really don't want to play against sneak and show. If the core of your removal in your control deck is leyline binding, the card show and tell gets a lot worse. And leyline binding also answers sneak attack a lot more cleanly. And because Leyline Binding being a flash answer to anything and also just generically clips whatever comes in off a of show and tell is a big flip for that matchup. Because you get to play Beanstalks, you're kind of built anyway to just hurl cards. Like you're playing more forces because your forces recoup themselves. You don't mind just spewing off cards on the deck building level because you're going to replace them with your Beanstalk. I do actually wonder if the massive showing of Sneak and Show and Reanimator was good for the bean decks so i was scrolling through the list and i was more interested in for myself than anything else i noticed that ad nauseum tendrils was the most played storm deck at 1.4 percent or i'm sorry 1.6 percent and i was like oh what was the most played deck in europe it was ad nauseum tendrils at 0.4 percent so if you combined both of these events together it is still less than two percent of the metagame i just want to throw that out there i know we talked about it in the pre-show you can leave your storm and hate at home i know it sounds disingenuous coming from me in these larger events, you need to prepare for the field and you can leave your mind break traps at home, that sort of thing. I know that we talked about it previously, but wow, I'm surprised at even how low these numbers are. Yeah. And like, he's aware of it. Uh, that always sounds dirty coming from Bryant saying to leave your storm hate at home, but we did talk about it kind of at length in the pre-show. And if you have one slot that you could dedicate to storm or to like initiative, you should target initiative. Let's, let's talk about that for a minute because the Boros initiative deck, the red white initiative deck is not currently a monolith. And in the top eight between the two eternal weekends, we saw three very different takes on the deck. There's a build that is like maxed out on Archons. There is a build that is no longer playing Caves of Chaos Adventurer. There is a build that is going more human-based for maximizing Cavern of Souls' utility that is slotting in things like Brutal Cathar, that's the 
two colorless and one white sort of oblivion ring on a creature. And also Aowen Fearless Knight, which you might not have come across. It's two colorless red-white for a 3-4 hasty human knight when it ETBs exile target creature and opponent controls with greater power. Legendary creatures you control gain protection from each of that creature's colors until the end of turn. So do your homework on what the initiative deck might look like because there are pretty drastic card choice differences. I just want to call out some spicy differences in card choices. So the deck that went undefeated at the Asia Championship was Oops All Spells, which is wild. Like the deck that we're like, if you go like three or four episodes ago, we talked about not playing Oops All Spells because you need to make it through a 10 round event. And this is a deck with a lot of, you know, variants and your wheels are likely going to fall off. Well, Oops All Spells went undefeated. Okay. Props to that person. Congrats to them. When you look at the deck list, there's two copies of Once Upon a Time. Okay. That's interesting. I guess it's not stock. There's two copies of Dread Return. Okay, that's a little bit odd. Most lists only play one. And then on top of that, here's where the real spice comes in. Two main deck copies of Leyline of Anticipation. What? Okay, so they're playing two random ley lines. Okay. And then there's four main deck copies of Leyline of Sanctity. This person figured out what they wanted to do and just did it and went undefeated. I don't know how they did in top eight, but a perfect 10 out through the Swiss is pretty impressive. This is something that I've talked about with a bunch of people over the last week. I have been talking to to smart and reasonable people. One of my friends has 76 cards that they're very happy with for Eternal Weekend, and they needed to cut one card to make the list right where, like, you know, legal. <laughs> and we're talking about like a Force of Vigor or like what sideboard card can we afford to trim or move into the main and cut a main deck card. And after the performance of Reanimator in Europe, we were like, maybe we go down a Surgical Extraction. This deck is not good at baseline and it's getting pummeled by hate across the format. I do wonder if people saw that and had the same thought in the wake of Europe and then Oops All Spells just ran roughshod over this event that didn't play enough graveyard hate. Like, is that what happened? Or is did they actually just play tight and get good pairings the whole way up the, the chain here? And Surgical Extraction dropped from the sixth most play card down to the seventh. Yeah, that's not a huge deal, but Fairy Macabre not existing on the, the top 10 where it was above Dragon's Rage Channeler in the, the previous event is really interesting. Endurance is on this top 10 creatures list where it wasn't before. Endurance doesn't even always beat Oops All Spells. They can kind of just refire or pump the brakes and go again. And this list for main deck Leyline of Sanctity, good luck with those endurances. Maybe maybe this person is just uh, a genius or maybe they got great pairings or probably some combination of both. Fairy is no longer in the, the top 10 creatures in this weekend's results. I'd also like to shout out creeping around in the top 16 of Asian Eternal Weekend. H.J. Gotik, he's there again. You can't keep this guy down. He will probably have five paintings by the next, but by the time he's done playing Magic. Uh, this is a sick run, and he's willing to travel the entire world to, to play in all these events. Watch out for him. On Demir Scam, by the way, which he has also been playing online, H.J. Kaiser. He's been popping up online with his Demir Scam list. He's been on this for quite some time. I've been seeing his name pop up, and uh, 8-2 across this giant event is a good record. It's interesting looking at H.J.'s deck list right now. Him to Torok is an inclusion. I don't usually see that in the scam decks, but H.J.'s playing three. H.J.'s also brought over the one copy of Drown in the Lock from his vintage list over to his legacy list. Yeah, Drown in the Lock is quite a magic card. I don't, I don't know if you've gotten a chance to play with that. If you've played any lower power formats like Pioneer or Modern where this sees more play, it takes some doing, but I mean, Counterspell, Doomblade, Split, 
card is pretty messed up to just have access to if the game's going to go any kind of distance. And if you're playing cards like Grief and Him to Tarak, which happen to fill your opponent's graveyard and then turn on the Drown in the Lock, pretty good. Looking at the win rates, we talked about what they're categorizing as Domain Beanstalk, which I guess is a fair name for that. Uh, 60% win rate, completely bonkers. Uh, 79% win rate of that deck versus Teamer, uh, which is a, a big one because that was the number one deck in the field. 79% versus Grixis Tempo. 60 It's positive versus Scam in the 60s. Where is the Sneak and Show? Oh, actually, my theory might just be wrong. 40% win rate versus Sneak and Show. Maybe that wasn't why this was good, but if these Domain Beanstalk decks are farming the, the Tempo decks, the Teamer and Grixis Tempo, to the tune of damn near 80%, that makes sense why this did well in the event. Second best performing deck, Boris Initiative, up a percent from Europe 57, up from 56. That's very good. Respectable numbers and across multiple different archetype or different versions of the archetype, like Phil said. Everything else is kind of in that 50 to 54 range. Uh, Sneak and Show actually was positive 51%. Teamer Tempo 52, Grixis straight 50, Reanimator again sub 50, 47, up a little bit from the 45 in Europe, but this deck's not doing well. If you're not a master with Reanimator, do not play this deck. Like, for real. If it's your deck and you really did the work and understand it, do it. But if you're just showing up to Eternal Weekend and you're like, I'm going to play whatever, why not Reanimator? Save yourself 80 bucks or do something different. Death and Taxes, straight 50-50, even Steven. Uh, Demir Evoke, I, I guess that's the scam deck. Slightly positive 51. Painter down into normal mortal range of 51. Cloudpost, just ate shit here. 39% win rate. There was a lot of buzz about Cloudpost in Europe because people were like, we're going to go way over the top of these bean decks that everyone's going to play. I did play against Cloudpost at four and three, by the way, not when anyone was in contention. And they did go way over the top, by the way. It was not particularly close, but also look at that 39% win rate versus the Beanstalk deck that it's built to beat going 60% in this tournament. I do not think Cloudpost is a brilliant meta choice. And I have heard rumblings about it, both from people I talk to and on Twitter and in my Patreon Discord. People are kicking that around just for real. Like, same thing with the reanimator. Like, if you're just, if this is your deck and you're a master with it, go ahead, live your life, play the deck that you think is going to win the most. But if you're just showing up for the weekend, do not play this freaking deck. Delving into the data for Baros Initiative just a touch, it had a 41% win rate versus the Rugged Alver deck and a 47% win rate versus like the Domain Beanstalk deck. Those are big portions of the room they did kind of mediocre against, and they still have a 57% overall win rate. Initiative players, if you have the ability to adjust your deck to become ever so slightly better versus the, the blue decks that are not cutting into their own life total, like you're fine versus the like scam decks that have reanimate and such where you're lowering the life totals but it doesn't look like they're doing quite as well versus some of the other blue decks right yeah boris initiative really made its money this weekend just kicking the teeth out of mono red decks both painter and prison 73 percent versus mono red 67 versus painter 67 versus demir scam 63 versus death and taxes 55 versus you show yeah really just like kick the teeth out of anyone who did not have blue mana in their deck um on the topic of mono red decks and like looking forward to our next eternal weekend i wouldn't be too surprised if mono red 
prison like moon stompy numbers trend up a little bit in the pre-show we talked a lot about broadside bombardiers and how crazy that card is we're just like really starting to see people get their hands on them on magic online and do dirty things with them it was not enough of the metagame in Prague to make it onto the primary like data breakdowns and it's got a 54% win rate uh, in Japan all of a sudden. So just have it on your radar. Do you guys have anything else you want to say about Legacy? I could do a quick vintage breakdown here. Yeah, go for it. We got in the top eight, another Oath deck, Demir Storm. That's going to be Beseech Combo. Azorius Control. This list was actually really interesting. It was just kind of a bunch of blue control cards and four white plume adventurers. There's two Lavinia, four white plume adventurer, one Narset, one Karn, because they're both restricted. And then all the blue cards, just Ancestral, Time Walk. Two transmute artifacts. Yeah, they're transmuting artifacts in here. Uh, they've got four copies of the One Ring. This is kind of... There are initiative tinker decks, and I guess that's what this is. I have heard rumblings of those, but this looks like a deck that's trying to do three different things. But all of those things are good enough to win a vintage game. So maybe the it's just fine like that. I think that deck is kind of cool. And then uh, Demir Control, that's another Luris deck. Mono Blue, this is going to be the, the Jewel deck. I think Jewel Shop sucks, Like which is going to be a controversial take. I know there are people who think the deck is good and I mean the win rate is there. But Jewel Shops, to me, might as well be Oops All Spells. You mulligan aggressively to try to do something jacked up on turn one you are a force of will deck so it's a little better than like truly all in combo it at the same time it is all in combo it's blue count is dangerously low by the way so like there will be hands reopen force and not a blue card correct yep and all your blue cards are important they're like phyrexian metamorph which copies your jewel and that's part of your engine and yeah like the the blue cards are all really good it's Phyrexian Metamorph, which is part of your engine because it copies Coveted Jewel, and then Ancestral Recall, Time Walk, Tinker, Paradox, Glaucom. Those are your blue cards in the deck. Good luck pitching any of those and still playing the game. Uh, but it is powerful, and you got to watch out for it. Golos Stacks, an actual traditional Mishra's Workshop deck, did get into this top eight. I think we have two initiatives. Yep, Initiative is a deck to watch out for. Everyone knows about that one. You still have White Plume Adventure in this format. You get all the mocks in. It's just much easier to cast a 3-drop or 4-drop on turn 1. These creatures hit harder in Vintage. Like, Thalia Guardian of the Raven can just end a game on its own in Vintage, where in Legacy, like, it provides a squeeze over multiple turns that could effectively help win a game, but Thalia can just solo a game in Vintage. Also, the initiative deck is like super accessible if you are an outsider to Vintage. Every deck has a skill ceiling, like there's stuff to learn with every deck. But the initiative deck just like fucking slaps. It is just objectively incredibly powerful and accidentally steals wins with hate bears as well. You just have more bodies than opposing decks have removal. They can't stop it all. They have to win through some of it. Right, exactly. Archon of Emeria, four of in this deck, Anointed Peacekeeper, which is great against Bazaar. Like it gives you game versus Bazaar Baghdad. You just name that and they can never do their thing their deck is meant to do. Uh, for Chancellor the Annex, so you can even like kind of steal the play or have uninterrupted turn ones. This deck is very good. And uh, Phil called it accessible. Uh, he means that skill-wise, uh, it's still a $45,000 deck because this is fucking vintage and the reserve list sucks. I mean, if you have access to power, this deck I don't want to say will play itself, but it will do a lot more of the work for the pilot than something that requires 
navigating combo lines. Something that I'd like to point out is that Doomsday was on my short list of decks to play in Vintage, and I was really looking forward to seeing how it did in Prague and how it would do in Asia. It had one pilot, 6-2, and between both events, every other pilot did worse than that. So if you're thinking about Doomsday, I still think it's a reasonable deck, but right now there's a lot of hate for it out there. The one really nice thing about Doomsday is that it's a deck that can easily win through Lavinia. And right now, Lavinia is on the rise. So if you're looking to play Vintage at Pittsburgh and you're thinking about Doomsday, I'm not saying it's terrible, but you have your work cut out for you, and maybe things are swinging in your favor. Yep, the Predator for Doomsday right now is the Lurus Control deck that plays six forces, two Spell Pierce, two Fluster Store, Mental Misstep, etc., etc. That is, and it doesn't mind going empty to beat your first wave because it will refill its second wave better. So I think with that being said, I think we've said what we need to say about our overseas Eternal Weekends. I hope it was useful to you all. And for those of you who will be playing in Eternal Weekend here in America, I wish you all luck, and I look forward to seeing what sort of spicy things you come up with.